Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to this special rock podcast. My name is Alan Dimmick. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at the issues of problem drinking and addiction in rugby. In the studio we have Owen Slot and Alex Lowe. This is to coincide with a special investigation that was done in Rugby World magazine, which is on sale at the moment. And what we've been looking at is the issues of drinking with elite players. We've not focused on what happens in the clubhouse We've not focused on what happens when teams go on nights out. We've not focused on what happens when people drink in a stadium because we're looking at the human element here of what happens when an elite athlete is really struggling. What support is out there, what the opinions are, uh, where people can turn, problems that they have to internalise and and how they deal with that. We're going to be listening to special clips throughout and we're going to have a quick panel discussion about the issues that arise. We have spoken to an elite medic from a range of sports who has some interesting things to say about athletes. I'm just going to read out some of the quotes from him. This is a quote from a medic who's worked across a range of sports, and this is specifically about rugby. He has seen, and I quote, Mixed into the bog-standard end-of-season press releases, I've seen players who have had issues with drink or drugs being described as having a bad back or a chronic issue. I've seen players who have gone into rehab and then been transferred to another team. And I'm not entirely sure how well disclosed their medical history has been or how well the player has been treated. This is in both union and league. He goes on to say, It's not the fact that someone has a problem with alcohol or taking drugs. What you need to do is get to the bottom of why they are doing it. In the general population, you have people who drink and drive or who get depressed and drink. You have people with issues who take solace in drugs. It's the same in rugby, but it's about us accepting it. It's not, let's look after the player. It's, let's ignore them and bend them off as soon as we can. It's treated like an infectious disease. They think it's like chicken pox, and everybody can catch it. So ironically, they end up doing entirely the wrong thing, which is isolating the player and making them more lonely, which will never, ever solve the problem. Alex, how do you feel when you hear a a medical professional talking about that in elite sport? A player's medical history is confidential, and so clubs are duty bound sometimes to explain why they're not playing and and, and I know I know I've heard for a fact as well in, in other sports that that they're not going to tell the truth often because that player doesn't want his medical history out yeah. there however 
so that, that was my first thought. However, you then went on to finish finish the quote, and it's and it sounds a, a hell of a lot more sinister than that. It, it, it sounds like a dereliction of, of of a duty of care that any employer would have. And, and we, we you know we're talking here about elite athletes, but but it actually doesn't. It should be no different anywhere in any industry that um that if if an employee who's valued need, needs help, you should be helping rather than bidding them off. Oh, and listening to those quotes and actually listening to a large part of what we'll end up talking about is the fact that rugby heroes are not superheroes they're the same as you and I they can have the same problems they've still got to go to the same supermarkets as we do they've still got to deal with family issues they will have the same crippling anxieties that we will face um, but you know a lot of the time in the public eye but when you hear that I mean how do you feel when you hear about perhaps people thinking of the business and perhaps shifting a player on rather than actually saying we're going to fix this player and look after them long term as they would perhaps uh, an injury it's sad um, maybe not surprising because as you say a, a rugby player is is a human being and, and susceptible to 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 weakness um, uh, illness or whatever um, a, a, as much as any of the rest of us I don't think I'm really surprised by the way you say the players have been treated but that doesn't make it remotely okay as you say, a, a club's running a business. If you have a player who isn't fit to play, then you will give, like as with an injury, you'll give it a certain amount of time. And I guess if if there's a player with a problem with alcohol, you don't know when you when you're going to get the best of them back on the pitch. That doesn't make it okay, but I think I can just about understand it. That's from a pure business perspective. Here's an, here's an asset that's going to take us too much time and effort to to, to manage. And so we'll shift him on. That, that's what the quote is saying. And, and I, I actually think is that not counterproductive? That if you, if, I mean, if if a club helps that player, then that player will will respond better and 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 perform better. Earlier the season, I went to see uh, Duncan Taylor at, at Saracens. He was out injured. It wasn't um, any other issue other than that. But the club treated him so well while he was out and, and helped him get better, rather than rushing him. That that he he comes back and he signs a new deal. If you if you push people aside too quickly because it's too much effort, then actually I think it's counterproductive for the club as well as the player. So you talk about it's just a, just a business decision, but it, it should be more than that. When you sign a new player uh, it goes to a medical, a lot of clubs now, what they'll do is they'll farm out the process of doing a medical with a player who's waiting to sign for you. So you send it off to someone like Bupa, for example, a private healthcare company. And what they'll do is they'll check the basics. They'll look at your joints. They'll look at your heart. They'll look at your lungs. Um, they'll make sure that you can function as an athlete so they'll look at your running style and that kind of thing and make sure that everything's okay I'm yet to speak to a professional player who's ever done a medical with anyone and one of the questions that's come up is how's your mental state? Are you okay? Do you suffer from anxiety? How's your, how's your family life at home? Is there any issues we should know about? No one ever knows that because the transaction is always can they play? Great, mm. fantastic get them in here, let's sort it out do you, do you have a do you have a, an idea, Al, um, from your investigation as to how widespread this is? As in, uh, how many players out there, say in the Premiership, you think might be struggling, and also how many of the clubs um, would respond with the cold shoulder in the way you describe? Well, I think it's worth at this juncture saying that this is not a widespread problem. This is not something that you would say that a quarter of people in the Premiership Super with. It's nowhere near the levels of that. It is dribs and drabs. However, we're now going to hear from Tom Fitzsimmons, who some may know from Twitter as drying out. He's been working with the RPA, going around clubs, 
talking to players uh, and academy players about his problems with alcoholism and and what he's learnt from that, uh, offering a bit of advice. And he also speaks to us here about a few elite players, completely anonymously, that he has advised and his experience of working with elite players and the few that are willing to reach out and get some help. The, the sports players, and obviously I can't name these guys, of course, yeah. but the sports players are, are guys who are, who are hitting their, their levels every week in training, but behind closed doors, they don't feel connected. They don't feel that they're being communicated with properly. They don't feel that anybody understands what they're going through, an issue that's not rugby-related. These people are high performers. But then the expectation level, as they get better, becomes higher. But their, where their belief system is who they are yeah. is still here. So if, you're, if you can't bridge that gap of expectation, the easiest thing to do is self-destruct. It doesn't matter where you come from. You have, yeah. you have some sort of an issue down there. You have a belief system of who you are. And if somebody keeps telling you you're brilliant, but you don't believe it, then you start to use something else that makes you feel better about yourself. Now, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be um, sex addiction, it could be violence, it could be um, you know driving fast cars, it could be just something that will bring your value up. Because these guys have never been taught how to work on themselves, I spoke to a guy um, and, and he was saying about, I put this player forward to, to play at international level and, and he, he just completely blew up. I thought it would be exactly what he needed. In, in fact, it was the worst thing he could have done to him because he hadn't built his confidence. He told him he was great, but he didn't believe it. And that's what we've got to work on. We've got to work on the player's self-belief rather than everyone else's expectations of him. And this particular player... And went to play for the country, didn't actually make it on the pitch because he self-destructed off it. That's a really sad thing that the coaching staff thought that this was the way to do it. People will find it difficult because they don't know the person. He's been taught how to play rugby probably since the age of eight, three times a week since the age of eight. Now, if you were taught to be, um, grow emotionally every day since the age of eight, three times a week, yeah. you wouldn't have a problem. And a lot of these guys spend so much time playing rugby, they don't grow emotionally. There's a player who's got an addiction to alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling. If he's got an addiction problem, I think it should be an embargo on that player and say, look, guys, you cannot sell this player until we get him sorted. It's your duty to get that player sorted. Rugby union is phenomenal in the level of support they give their players. I really do. I've been so impressed with the stuff the RPA and other people do um, around this, this issue. But I do worry that some players are falling through the net and are being sold on knowing that they've got an issue. Okay. So that certainly has happened in rugby league. I know, I know it's happening in rugby league. And because the player then turns up somewhere else and he's got an issue. So that was Tom Fitzsimmons there uh, talking about uh, his views and the work that he's done with, with uh, elite rugby players. Alex, what do you think the landscape is like for someone who comes out with an issue someone as public as uh, as a professional athlete, professional rugby player, comes out with an issue like this and they have to almost go through a public trial. What's the landscape like for them? My sense is, is that the landscape is, is shifting to, to a more positive place. The RPA had a campaign which, which they launched really through the Sunday Times last year, Lift the Weight, which, which has encouraged many more players to come forward. I think we've had a, there have been a lot of pieces in, in the news in the newspapers and and television recently with with players who and sports people who have come forward 
to talk about their anxiety issues and, and depression issues. And there is a clear correlation between uh, a sportsman who's struggling mentally and their use of, of substances and alcohol. Um, and, and those who, who have spoken about it have, have drawn that connection. Um, the, so I, I sense that there's the environment is, is shifting and rugby isn't a world, isn't like soccer where players are going to be, you know, there's a risk of them being vilified from the stands. But you are talking about a macho environment. In a premiership rugby club, it's a macho environment. Players, elite sportsmen are tested mentally. I mean, you only have to listen to Eddie Jones to you know, speak about how much of, of what he is doing is testing his players' mental strength. The culture is one of, of machismo and, and to show weaknesses is a very difficult thing to do. And that's what anyone who's struggling with it, with issues, anyone who, who might turn to substances or or alcohol, it strikes me as a clear sign that they are they are struggling. And, and so I think the wider environment is is shifting, but I can completely understand how in in the tight-knit world of, of a rugby club, it could be very, very difficult to acknowledge it. But my take on it is on occasions, I couldn't name an occasion where a player has spoken to teammates, friends or whatever, and brought forward their issue or their, their problem or their illness or whatever and said, listen, I need help. Is there ever, has there been an occasion in the last 10 years or five years when people have gone, oh, well, you're, you're weak? I, th- I think rugby is a pretty understanding environment now, and especially, as you say, with all the campaigns of, of mental health, etc. I mean, go back to Gareth Thomas when he, he came out as gay, and he was, you know, his book is all about, uh, uh, you know, his huge problem with what, what will this rugby environment think mm. of me? And when it happens, it, it's, it's almost like, Christmas, why didn't I do this earlier? And I think if you are that person who's struggling, then and you're in that rugby club environment where it's blokes and it's testosterone, and it, if you're the person who's struggling, then you're thinking the last thing I want to do is show weakness, as you say. But I think whenever anyone has said, "Listen, guys, I've got a problem," I, th- I think people will people just accept. I think it's a pretty mature environment. Do you think then that actually that's the biggest stumbling block that people have is just making that initial step? and coming out because you feel that the landscape out there would be accepting isn't that the, what, what they say about, about depression is that the, the, the biggest step is acknowledgement and I would say that be the same in a rugby environment for whatever your your issue is Alex what do you make of public perception then do you think that actually the public at large are more accepting of that because some people might see it as weakness do you think that because as we mentioned at the top there the few people that do suffer with issues like this we have to acknowledge that elite rugby players are not superheroes. Do you think that when that does happen, the public need to acknowledge the fact that these people aren't superheroes as well? One of the, the biggest and most famous rugby players that England's ever produced has, has talked about anxiety in, in Johnny Wilkinson and hasn't done his, his image and his reputation any harm at all. Wouldn't, don't view Johnny Wilkinson any weaker for coming, coming out and talking about it. I, what I was saying before, I can see why it's so, it could be so difficult for a rugby player to, to acknowledge it publicly because of the environment he works in and because he's in the public eye. But it's actually no different to any of us acknowledging something publicly. It's, it's a big, big step. But, it, but we only have to listen to the, to the interviews that Johnny Wilkerson gives and, and, and other sportsmen gave in, in Mental Health Awareness Week to, to understand that actually they get a very positive reaction. When I um, had the privilege of ghostwriting Johnny Wilkerson's autobiography um, seven years ago now, when he started talking about his his mental health problems, his depressions, and he put in the in the book there are some very deep in depth uh, descriptions of of what he went through, and and when he was talking about that, I was unprepared for how honest he was going to be, 
but like every time we did it like a couple of days later he was going I'm not sure we should have that in the book can we not have that in the book do you think we should have that in the book and why do you think that was well he was very, very honest he's what, what what are people going to think of me you know because people think of me as Johnny the drop goal king and I go well this this is who you are and two, I, I don't think you, you do anything other than have people understand you and empathise with you more. And, well, given the way that his career's gone since then and the way that he now is, is such an active spokesman for, for mental health, I, I know he's he's delighted that he did that. OK, what we're going to do now is we're going to have a call from Jason Robinson, who's helped with our investigation for Rugby World magazine and is, is on the line now. Uh, firstly, for a bit of context... When did you realise that your your lifestyle needed to change with with relations to alcohol? When, when I came a couple of years after coming into professional sport, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a massive massive change. It was a massive change for me anyway, coming from a, a working class background, quite a poor background, and then all of a sudden being a full time professional, getting a good wage, and and probably not having the character to deal with what was happening in in my life. You know, becoming a full time professional, playing. In the big stadiums, being adored by fans, you know, if you don't have the character to handle it, then yeah, sometimes drink can be uh, can be something you use to uh, to mask the pain. You mentioned about masking the pain. One of the things we've been discussing here is the fact that elite athletes are the same as everyone else. What do you mean when you say masking the pain? Most people see two people. You know, you see, you know, what's what's on the field, what's performing. You have a perception of what then they're like off the field, and the two can be completely different. You know, I was playing exceptionally well, even though I had, you know, quite a few uh, challenges. You know, one one minute you're playing in front of 80,000 people at Wembley, you know, the next day uh, you're at home and and you feel lonely and, and nobody to talk to. So. The thing is, people see all the glamour side of what you do, but the certain environments, I know, for you know, for instance, the, the rugby environment, it's all a macho environment. You've got to show that, you, you know, there's never anything wrong with you. You're tough. You know, you don't have any weakness. And the reality is, you know, it's just a perception. You know, we, we are human. You know, there are things that, you know, we struggle with, whatever that may be. We do need to be treated as, as, as normal people instead of superheroes, as, as people think you are. You know, when... You know, the cameras are betraying you in a certain way. How the hell did you manage to perform at such an elite level, drinking as you did? I mean, you mentioned that you were out sometimes four nights a week drinking. How did you manage to perform at that level? Um, I'm not quite sure. I was young. I was fit. I love what I was doing. I'm really not sure. I think it's uh, I think it's you that got me through it. You know, what's 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 the alternative? You know, you, you're in an environment where uh, you've just got to turn up and you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to produce whether that's training on the field. How far do you think things have come now with, with players that might be, be dealing with issues like that? I mean, you've spoken in the past and I'd be keen to hear your thoughts about this. You mentioned you'd like to see someone working in clubs but not an employee of the club who looks after players and if they need help can sort of take them away from things so that the employers don't have to get involved. I think it's a lot easier now. I think more men are, you know, are coming out and, and finding help. That's sort of how it should be. But you've got to, you've got to feel safe. You know, if you're if, if you're in certain environments and they are high pressure um, and the spotlight is on you, you know, if you do open up, which is not very often for men, but if you do, you want to feel safe that you can do it. You know, without somebody then turning around and saying, "Well, hang on a minute, what you've got a drink problem or you've." You know, you've got a gambling problem or whatever it may be. And then uh, as a result of that, 
um, you know, the, the, you, you end up getting your contract terminated or, you know, all of a sudden it, it adds to uh, the problems you already got because now they're thinking, well, you know, do we really want him um, at our club um, if, he, if he's got these issues? So, uh, you know, I think it'd be good if there was somebody independent that you could go and see without fear of anything like that happening. How real is that fear? I mean, how, how close to the wire can it come? Because... We hear stories of contracts being at risk if anyone's got any long-term injury. If it's something like this, that there's still a certain stigma around. There must be a hefty level of fear about about contract. Things are getting a lot better. I know in in rugby there's a a, a lot more, you know, for the players, um, a lot of support. Um, you know, I'm I'm not fully in that circle, so I don't fully understand. You know the extent of the support, but you know that there, there is a lot more, and, uh, and and people are finding that support. And it's invaluable because you know, again, you know, in the professional sports world, you know, all it could take is is one injury. One injury keeps you out for three, four months. Somebody takes your place. All of a sudden, you know, you start having that doubt: Will I get back in? It may have a result on. No, contract, um, not renewing. It's just vital that the support is there because everybody needs needs support. And, and quite often, as I said before, uh, the likelihood is men are, are most reluctant to get help and then wait until it's got to a certain level. The biggest killer of, of, of men under 50 is, is suicide, which, which is just utterly ridiculous. It is taken seriously now and uh, hopefully that support will get better and more and more men will open up about it because it's it's okay to uh, not have it all together. So that was Jason Robinson giving us his views. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, what did you make of that, what Jason had to say? Pretty raw, wasn't it? He went straight to the core of how stressful it can be, uh, of your fears of where your job's going to go, and how hard it is to talk in in a rugby world. He, he addressed everything. So his his story, Vainga Twigamala arrives at Wigan, and they form a kinship, and, and that influence was was really influential on on Jason turning his life around. He found Christianity through Inga Twigamala, and that's what stopped him from drinking. But what he said to us there that he found a safe place. He knew in Twigamala he could trust somebody to help him. And he talked there about, if you're going to open up, you need to be confident that there's a safe place. I'd be confident to feel that if any player at a Premiership Rugby Club spoke to his coach or his teammate, he'd find that safe place. But it's just so difficult to convince yourself that it's there. 
So we're now going to hear from Philip Hopley, who works with Cognasty. They are used by the RPA. They're a group with psychiatrists that can help people. So if a, if a player from the RPA phones up the hotline for Cognasty and says, I've got an issue with this. Firstly, the fact that someone is willing to reach out is a, is a red flag. If someone in professional capacity is willing to go and look for some help, then it's got to be taken seriously. So once that's assessed by those that work on it, the trained professionals that work on the helpline, they can give it to an on-call psychiatrist who can end up talking to this player for an hour about the issues that they have. And from there, they'll start working together on a, a strategy. The good thing about this is, is that because it's through the RPA and because it's through a company like Cognasty, it's completely divorced from the professional game. So people can go and seek help that way. And to be fair, there are services all around. So there's other nations. If you look in Ireland, they've got services like this. If you look in New Zealand, uh, Rugby Union, Australian Rugby Union, they have services like this. They have mentors as well, people that have gone through similar issues. There are things that are being set up in different places. Because there's a, a vaster diaspora of players from the Pacific Islands going around the world that they felt like they had a hole in France. So they're now working really hard to make sure that they have services like this in France. Unfortunately, in something that we mentioned in the in the investigation is that the SRU doesn't have something set up for players away from their union. They have systems that are set up through the HR department of the SRU. A lot of people I've spoken to don't feel that that cuts the mustard. There needs to be something where players can go anonymously. We're going to hear now what it is actually that Cognasty do. Listen to this. Cognasty is a group of experts in mental health working across a spectrum from people who are elite performers looking to squeeze that extra 0.1% of a percent out of their performance to people at the other end of the spectrum who've got significant mental health problems that need robust treatment. People in general find it hard to ask for help. Young men in particular find it hard to ask for help. And people in the sports domain can often find it hard to ask for help. So the, the mere fact they've got in touch means we take it very, very seriously. Then if we're thinking about what are the severity factors around alcohol use, alcohol misuse, it really boils down to what impact that drinking pattern is having on that individual's quality of life and their ability to perform. So we would carefully ascertain how much they're drinking, when they're drinking, and what the impact of their drinking is on them. But obviously there's still a lot of stigma around to do with mental health and addictions. Um, so that holds people back for a start. In the performance domain, if there's a concern that performance has been impacted by this, then understandably, those players might fear that that information being shared in the wrong places could impact their future employability, the contract renewal. And that's why the service we run is independent of the clubs and it's confidential. Even the Rugby Players Association don't know who we're working with unless those players have spoken to someone at the RPA. So the other encouraging development in this space that we're seeing in business, very often than providing a reactive service, by which I mean waiting for someone to develop mental health or addictive problems and then helping them, we're seeing great interest in developing preventative services, sometimes called resilience training, or cognitive and behavioural interventions, which is loosely giving people the skills to balance their lifestyle, identify stressors, think in a more healthy way, and have what we call cognitive flexibility that diminishes the impact of the inevitable demands that they're facing. And so hopefully that approach aligned to good reactive services will mean that in time we might even see less people coming forward to seek help.
with a mental health diagnosed condition because they've been able to take the preventative steps earlier on in the piece and divert themselves away from that when they're in a phase of feeling burnt out or exhausted. This is best delivered as kind of as group workshop type intervention. So you might have a group of 15 to 20, so you might split, split the squad into two or three groups. You have a psychologist working with people, explaining the stress model, explaining how demands impact on us, but most importantly, explaining how our thinking styles and the way in which we behave around stress is either going to minimize or maximize the impact of that stress on us. And it's very kind of hands-on, pragmatic, skills-based work. We encourage people to walk away with one or two little changes they're going to introduce personally, set them a challenge of doing that across 21 days, set it up as a bit of a team challenge between guys working within the same squads, and let them then run with that through the season. You can then, based on that, send some follow-ups, either in the form of an email or questions that go out to guys and follow-up touch points. And for some organizations, they like to have one-to-one coaching for those that are really struggling, but that then enables you to embed these sorts of individual differences, which ultimately will make a change at the team level and within the organization, the culture, and, and that's what we're aiming for. So that was Phil Hopley talking about the work that Cognasty do, as well as on behalf of the RPA. Guys, one interesting thing that Phil told me before we did that was that when the Lift the Weight campaign started they noticed an increase in people coming. So as Alex hinted earlier, they actually did see a real take-up of people looking for help once the Lift the Weight campaign uh, started publicly. The other thing they said that was very interesting is that between women and men, that they were almost on par in terms of numbers, even though there's uh, vastly more men's professional players than there are women, which, really? is, which is an interesting wow. side note. Because if you're an elite female player, you go through the same anxieties you still have the same issues to deal with, but also on top of that, how much money you're being paid to do that, how it affects your lifestyle. As the women's game grows in stature in this country, it's just something to bear in mind that, again, not superheroes. Do you think, actually, we need more voices or in, in the public? Or because it's such a, a delicate issue, that we should we just accept that things are moving in the right direction As as and that, actually, it's not the public voices we need, it's the campaigns we need, like Lift the Weight? I don't know if, if this is really an answer to your question, but but one thing that I'm I don't quite get is why we're saying well we're agreeing it's okay to have a problem with alcohol and address it and say can you help me, but if you test positive for cocaine then you're going to get a two year ban. Uh, so where where do the two marry up? Where's where do, where's the understanding in that respect? James Slipper in in Australia has just received a suspension from the game and he says himself that he was struggling with life issues. That doesn't seem to be uniform our approach to, to this. If, if James Slipper is turning to cocaine rather than alcohol, he would, in my mind, deserve the same assistance. Slotty, I'm interested in what you're, you're driving out there. Would you like to see a change in that approach? Or is it just are you just noting the difference between them? I've always had a problem with... Uh, the idea that you test positive for recreational drugs and that that, that means you get banned from sports, um, which is a, probably a different conversation altogether because keeping sport clean from doping is exceptionally hard. So why, when you're doing recreational drugs, which doesn't really help your performance, should, should that equate to a, to a drugs ban? But that's probably that's probably next year's investigation and podcast. It's interesting, once we're talking about this, another thing that we cover in the investigation, we just give a brief look at to the, the difference in cultures uh, and how it's handled not quite what you were talking about there but in, instead with the influx of players from the Pacific Islands coming across and I only mention this purely because I got told one anecdote 
it's one that stood out screaming at me uh, when I first heard it. Uh, the story was about a young young man from the Pacific Islands uh, who will remain anonymous, signed for a team in the top 14, struggled with his lifestyle, uh, went out drinking, didn't quite fit in. He was booted around a, a couple of clubs. Same problems kept coming up until in the divisions below the top 14, he found himself at a club where they were willing to put him in a house with another Pacific Islander player, a more experienced fella. Uh, a guy known for looking out for other people. Joel, intents and purposes, got in the straight and narrow. Performances started going through the roof. This player was described as someone who could make something out of nothing. He just had genuine, raw talent. His reward for getting back on the straight and narrow was that he was given a club flat on his own and trusted to go in there. Unfortunately, the club flat was so close to local nightclubs that he soon fell into the same pattern. And according to the person that told me the story, the club had to sort him out to going to rehab. He's back on the straight and narrow again, and he seems to have sorted himself out. He's got he's got a new family. Uh, everything's looking out for him there. But it's just a story that stands out, and that's that's the level of understanding maybe that some people need. Is it's hard enough going around the world, even just fitting into a new team. And if you've got anxieties, you've got to deal with. For players from the Pacific Islands, there's a whole set of anxieties that people born on these shores wouldn't have to deal with you know the pressure to provide for your family the the sense of shame particularly with an issue pertaining to this and indeed it's it's proven very difficult to talk about certain subjects in in the on the course of this investigation because of the notion of dealing with with shame uh, and that's actually across all cultures with this one alex we were talking before this actually and you said there's nothing set up for for example you or i if we were having problems with this do you think, though, that there are certain circumstances within rugby where you've got to say there needs to be special treatment for some people? Well, I think, yes, and, and you know your, your story then didn't surprise me, but I've spoken at length to Dan Leo, who who was sort of inspired to, to start the work he, he does because of the cultural chasm between where the Pacific Island players come from and the world that they move into. Um, and he antagonises a lot of people at the top end of... Of rugby, but he does, as far as I can gather, a lot of very important work in helping clubs understand the mindset of the Pacific Island player and what it is that that they've given up, what it is that they're striving for, but also helping that player because almost all of them will come over and that money will be sent home for their family, and it's not uncommon at all for for the player to sacrifice virtually all of his income to send it home and live on scraps. And, and they can therefore be living in pretty squalid accommodation with no money, no understanding of the culture they've moved to. If they're the only islander at the club, very few friends as well. And that can be an incredibly lonely experience. As you say, it, it can apply to, to anyone moving to a different place. And on top of that, you have growing scrutiny. That story didn't, didn't surprise me. It is a, a, quite a big issue, I think, for in the global game as it is now. It's, it's a big issue. I agree with that. I wasn't surprised. I mean, it, it saddened hugely. But mm. the, the Pacific Islander thing is, I think we've come to understand that culture is so different. You leave your whole family behind, and there, that is a culture where family is so strong. Uh, you're you're in a, on the other side of the world that you don't know how things work here, etc., etc. It's such a massive change, and you're expected to go over and be a man and look after yourself. And as you say, they, in their culture, I think that they're further behind us in terms of being able to acknowledge weakness. If you're a, a man and head of a family in a Pacific, uh, uh, from one of the Pacific Islander nations, things you also have to understand with, and this is the last thing that we cover in the investigation, is a. Uh, what happens to those, what can happen uh, to those when the lights go out 
when the boots get hung up, how difficult it can be when rugby is no longer the largest part of your life and you've got to fill that gap with something else. We're lucky enough to catch up with Stefan Terblanche out in South Africa, which was South African rugby legends, um, players from a bygone era who have who've given up the game. He found some interesting things in dealing with players who have given up the game. You know, one of the issues we see more and more these days are players retiring from rugby, from professional rugby, coming straight out of school, being offered contracts. You know, they don't they don't work, they don't go to study. You know, all they do is play rugby, and then yeah. all of a sudden, your career comes to an end. If you're lucky, you play eight, ten years. Some a little bit longer, some shorter, depending on injury and you know and the normal attrition rate of this game that we that we love. And you know, then. Then we sit with these players' life after rugby. They might have a little bit of money, you know, saved, or just just no skill in terms of you know socialising, in terms of work skill. And all of a sudden, you're 33, 35, and you don't have a job, and you're literally unemployable if you can prepare yourself for life after rugby. Uh-huh. How much of a shock do you think it is for some people when they get get their way out into the real world? It's a it's a big shock. I can I can assure you. I mean, we see it more and more. You know, and, and the one good thing about it is, or the one thing that is, you know, is every, everybody goes through it. It doesn't matter if you, you know, if you were a Springbok or a, played for the All Blacks or for England or for Ireland, you know, life after rugby, there's a certain, you know, a way that you have to adapt. And some players deal with it, some players deal with it better than others. Some, it's a huge shock to the system. But the one good thing about it is that all ex players, all professional players will go through that at some stage in their career. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how long you play, it, it, there will come a stage and an end to your career somewhere. And, and how to deal with it is, is uh, you know, is something that you have to prepare yourself for. But when you're 21 years old, you're earning a lot of money. As you said, you've got everything done for you. You sometimes think that you know this is never going to end, and I'm going to be able to retire after rugby with the money that I made and, you know, the, the contacts that I made. There are, there are many players who deal, who's got to deal with social issues after rugby. I and mean, we did a study in 2015. You know, the guys do struggle from uh, anxiety, from sleeplessness, from alcohol abuse, from, you know, eating disorders and, you know, much more than the average person. So there's certainly a, a correlation there between retirement and, you know, these social issues that players have to deal with. Uh, we see it more and more. And it's also tough because, I mean, rugby players are, are tough, hard, perceived to be, you know, tough guys on the field. You don't show weakness because then the opposition will, you know, will find you on the field. So I would say that every single player go, go through the same emotions, through the same, you know, life after rugby, adapting to normal society, as I would like to call it. The one good thing is it's, it's okay not to be okay. I see mental mental health issues. I mean, that, it's, it's normal. It, it happens. You know, one in, one in four person in people in the world will, will struggle with that, and rugby players are no different. I think it can be brought on even more and be amplified when you have to retire. You have all that extra pressure on you. You're looking after a family. You're now 35. It's, you know, you're almost unemployable. You haven't studied after after school, yes, you've made a little bit of money, but there is ways around it. There's, there's help out there. The, the main thing, of course, is to educate the players while playing, and I think a, a much better job gets done these days in preparing these players for life after rugby, but I still don't think enough to really prepare them okay. for, for what's about to happen when they, when they retire from the game. Stefan Terblanche there, um, talking about what he'd experienced, and Owen, when Stefan talks there about the fact that former players 
regardless of what time they hung up the boots, are more likely to suffer from issues including anxiety, depression, eating disorders and alcohol abuse. I don't imagine that's a surprise. It, again, it's it's really, really sad, but it is the reality that I think the last few years we've become... Um, we've come to understand increasingly um, the, the RPA, who we mentioned a few times on this podcast, have worked really hard to, to, to understand and to, and to help. So I think we've got an understanding of how hard retirement from rugby and indeed all professional sports is. It becomes your identity. Suddenly it's not your identity anymore. Who are you? Where's your money coming from? Where are the cheering thousands of people who make you feel like a superhero, etc., etc.? Bloody hard. You're in a somewhat unique position to talk about this because you've, at least for your most recent book, uh, when you were looking at the talent lab and how sports can define the super elite athletes, and a number of studies have gone into super elite athletes and what drives them and motivates them, for that to be taken away, I mean, it must be like you're missing a limb. I think it is. I mean, literally it's like missing a limb because they fall over. I mean, they they do fall over, and that's that's what you're talking about. That's what Steph, Steph and Tablanche is talking about. This specific issue is, is very, very relevant to, to sportsmen because lots of people do, do the job that they do and then they go home. But professional sportsmen and professional rugby players, as, as Owen just said, it's their identity, it's their life, it's their lifestyle. And if you drop out of that from talking to people, it's, it's slightly easier when it's on your terms. If you drop out of it because of injury and you're not ready for it, it can be a brutal experience. You don't just retire, you don't just stop doing that job and start doing something else. Your whole sense of self has to change because you're no longer part of what's been your identity for 10, 15, well it could be for the most part of your life has been been in that environment How important is it now to get across the message that to current players and it's something, I mean they've got enough to worry about as they try and climb up the ladder but how important is it to get the message you think to, to players about life after rugby I don't think you can you can put high enough a value on that I mean, everything here that we've been talking about um Preparing for your life after rugby is, is just a massive thing. The RPA does do some really good work on it, but I still think if you're a young buck, 19, 20-year-old coming through thinking you're going to be a rugby player and you're fulfilling your dreams, it's pretty easy to ignore the fact that you can be sensible at the same time and prepare for what's going to happen next. That's all we're going to say about this. It's obviously heavy stuff, some important things in there. There are those that are really struggling with this. There are plenty of good news stories out there as well. There are people that are willing to talk about their experiences. There are those that are willing to to mentor or to help anyone with issues. If you're a member of the RPA, you can contact Cognasty at any point on 01373 But for those amateurs out there, for people that are struggling with those issues um, and think, you know what, I need to reach out for some help as well, there are plenty of links through the RPA's website or you can find them online if you look for minds.org.uk or www.samaritans.org. There's plenty of those that can help you through this. Um, Thank you very much for listening. 